Welcome to the SOAR Community Network Podcast with your host, Malie Ponpadit. Here, inside our community, we help each other see, own, articulate and release our unique message and mission into the world. Uncover your gifts and talents, release your passions, own your purpose and let's soar together. Hello and welcome to another episode of the SOAR Community Podcast. I am your host, Molly Pompadit, and today we have a very special guest, as we always do. Today we have Raymond B. Schmaltz III. He is the president of Ray Sun Productions, and this production company has been around for over 26 years. Ray has traveled the globe producing, directing, and replay directing major sporting events for various broadcasts and cable networks featuring professional sports such as NFL on Fox, the National Football League of Europe, highlighted by three nationally televised World Bowls, ESPN Championship, We College Basketball, and Foot Locker Track and Field Series on CBS. He's done several, several, several others, um, including um, MMA events, professional boxing, um, all kinds of work with ESPN, HBO, Showtime, you name it. He's also a four-time Emmy Award winner. Um, He has won Telly Awards and the list goes on and on. We're going to dive in and learn more about all his accomplishments. Ray, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Molly. Uh, Ray, one thing that I always like to start asking um, is, you know, what was the draw to this particular field, which is sports for you, the sports industry? Um, when did that all start for you? And do you remember the moment when you made that decision that this was going to be your career? It's quite funny. Um, while I was attending um, Princeton University, uh, I was not really, you know, much of a, of a student. I mean, I, I enjoyed being there. I love being there. I made great friends, great contacts. Um, but I ended up leaving my middle of my junior year and um, coming back to New York City and trying to figure out what it was I, I I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. But while I was there, I, I did involve myself with the local radio station. The, actual, the school actually had its own radio station. So I did a, a jazz show and a rhythm and blues show, um, and I did that every year that I was there. So for three years uh, while I was at school, radio uh, was kind of like my first introduction to um uh, to the industry. And then uh, when I decided to get back involved with school and try to figure out a major, um, that was when I, I decided that communications or broadcast journalism communications was going to be my focus now. Um, I had a, a, a professor there at uh, Lehman College in the Bronx who um, we're talking about a book that uh, was just one of those eclectic books that not everybody enjoyed, not everybody got into, and certainly the other members of my class couldn't stand the book, but it was called uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, yes. And, yes, and uh, my professor, whose name was Bill Collins, uh, it literally was he and I only talking during the class. I mean, just it was just like the two of us were the only ones there and there was no one else talking. 
So uh, at the end of the class, he kind of pulled me aside and he said, you know, uh, you're, you're not the typical student I usually have in these classes. And, uh, you know, are you, are you coming back to school or, you know, tell me a little bit about your story. And I just told him I had, you know, left a major university and money was tight and, but I did want to try to get my degree and, and kind of figure out a focus. And so, um, he said, well, what, what area are you interested in? And I said, well, uh, I think I'm in, I'd like to involve myself in sports television, but I have no idea how to approach it. Just so happened that this gentleman, his wife, happened to be the private secretary for Howard Cosell at ABC Sports. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, talk about ironies. Um, he took my resume, brought it over to, um, uh, her name was Diane, and Diane turned it on to um, uh, the powers that be at ABC Sports, and this was back in uh, 1980. And then um, maybe a couple of months later, I got an interview um, with ABC Sports. I'm probably 24 at the time. And uh, I got all the way to the final interview process. I did not get hired right away, funny enough. Um, I actually ended up uh, working for an advertising agency as an assistant producer on a, a couple of commercial accounts for about six months. And then ABC called me back for a second set of interviews. And that was it. That's how my uh, professional sports career began. Now, that's a, that's a great story. And the question would be, did you play sports prior to this? When, when uh, this gentleman asked you, you know, what are you interested? What do you like to do? Was it very natural because you um, were an athlete? Or was it something that you just loved to watch? I was an athlete in high school. I played football, basketball. Uh, I wrestled a little bit. But uh, I became unbelievably disillusioned with, uh, in particular, football, which was probably my best sport. I got recruited by several schools, but at the time, I um, I was very much uh, a very militant individual at 17, 18 years of age. <laughs> so I, I had been attending a private school in New York City, a mostly white private school in, in midtown Manhattan. And uh, I really got sick and tired of hearing that the only way I was going to get into a, a good college was to play sports. Mm. And so that was my uh, um, focus was to attend an excellent school and not play sports. So I really wanted to thumb my nose at the administration. And so um, my yes. first my first pick was uh, Princeton University. I had a good friend of mine that was already attending the university. He was two years ahead of me. And so um, I had a great interview there. I met a lot of people there. And so I think that really helped influence mine. Because my board scores, my SAT scores went great. But... I was very, very involved in my community. I was uh, a good student at school. Um, I sang. I, I, I did a lot of different things. So um, I was a fairly kind of well-rounded individual. And uh, it, it brought me, uh, just brought me untold pleasure to be able to tell them that I was attending Princeton in the fall <laughs> and that, uh, you know, thanks, but no thanks for your help. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So when you were at ABC Sports, what were some of your duties and how long were you there before um, your next your next journey took place? And I, I do want to um, have you share how uh, you decided to start your own production company. Well, I was there for five years as what they called an assistant to the producers. So back then we really had a, 
a tremendous range of uh, responsibilities. Uh, we directly worked with all of the production people that were assigned to any event that we did, and that included the talent. So we negotiated the uh, hotel fees. We worked on people's uh, flights. Uh, we arranged uh, rental cars or limousines um, or private service cars, whatever they may have been. Um, we also did the graphics. All the graphics that uh, you see on a sports cast have to be compiled and the data stored. And uh, so we had been using very primitive equipment back then. You can imagine back in the 1980s right. how primitive some of the equipment was. I mean, we were still using, uh, when I got started, two-inch uh, videotape, which was probably the weight of like a full carry-on bag, you know, anywhere between... 40 to 50 pounds. So the reels themselves were extremely heavy to pick up, but um, wow. those were those were some of the immediate duties that that we did. And we did shows that were videotaped, so we would be there and we, we'd record all the material on whatever the source was and we'd bring it back to either some place like a London, like if we were, we, we could be overseas, like I could be in, maybe I would do a show in Germany and then uh, that show that we did would have to air the very next weekend. So we would fly as a group, small group, to uh, London and edit in London, have the show ready for the weekend, do the graphics, and then we would fly back to, uh, to the U.S. So we could be away for as much as um, uh, two weeks at a time or a week and a half, depending on how much time it took to record the event and then get it edited and then return back to the States. Fascinating. Um, wow. In, in other instances, you know, if we were doing the Olympics, I mean, we could be gone for three and a half to four weeks at a time. So during that time I was with um, ABC, I did uh, the Winter Games in Sarajevo, Sarajevo in the old Yugoslavia, and uh, the L.A. Uh, Summer Games uh, at, the, um, at USC at the, uh, at the stadium on the campus of uh, USC. So, um, I mean, I remember spending literally a month in Los Angeles trying to figure out how to avoid the, uh, the great traffic jams. And I got pretty good at driving around the, uh, <laughs> the town without having to hit the freeways. Well, these are great, great stories. You've seen a lot. You've been, you've been around the world, um, you know, really capturing what people want to see. The, uh, the sports is such a huge thing, especially all over the world, really. But, you know, we have so many fanatics here that love, love sports, and you're able to to capture all of that. Um, what does that feel like for you after all these years? You know, you um, have been traveling around. You're working at this point with ABC. I mean, what was the inspiration behind just making that decision, making uh, that decision of starting your own production company? Did that happen right away, or did you move on to other uh, careers before you decided to launch um, Race and Productions? It didn't happen right away. It was kind of like um, part of... Uh, my own kind of metamorphosis I was going through. Um, the one thing about um, travel and doing what we do, it can be very tough on the family. Mm -hmm. So if you're married, and I was married at the time, it can uh, put a strain on the marriage. So my marriage was failing at that point at the end. Um, I had pretty much um, maxed out how much time I, I figured I needed to spend at ABC Sports. Uh, so I didn't think I could gain any more knowledge from what they'd already taught me. And they taught me very well. I mean, it was one of the best 
experiences I could ever ask for in pre preparing myself for this this industry and my career later on. But by the time 1986 rolled around, a lot of the networks, in particular the major networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS, their sports divisions were beginning to cut back dramatically. And so a lot of people that were in my industry now had to go from being full-time staff employees to learning how to become freelancers mm -hmm. or independent contractors. And that was because now the corporations don't have to pay pension and welfare and benefits and health insurance and all that stuff that began to become very um, expensive for them at least. And so um, the late 80s roll around, I started freelancing for various networks at that point. And I was still kind of like uh, doing things as uh, a graphics coordinator or a graphics producer. But my goal was to become my own producer as well as become an experienced associate director, which required me to have to uh, train and be, uh, join the D Directors Guild of America. And uh, the DGA, there's one for film, there's one for television. And so I was, you know, looking to become involved with the television portion of it because I needed that behind me if I were to uh, expand and broaden the number of networks I could freelance for now. Right. And out of that grew the opportunity to go ahead and from other people that I had worked with in, in the industry who started opening and creating their own corporations so that those businesses would hire their corporation to help produce, direct, or become involved with a particular sporting event. And, and so that's how I kind of grew into my own uh, production company, more mostly out of necessity because uh, it really helped to have something like that behind you to, for, to convince other networks that you were a good person to take a chance on to hire them, for them to hire you, to help produce their uh, the, the sporting event that they wanted to put on the air. Hmm. Now, how have you been able to really stay in business for all this time? We hear a lot about entrepreneurship. We read about it. Uh, uh, we personally here at SCN, we work with a lot of entrepreneurs. And it is very challenging to stay the course and to also give yourself permission to pivot and make changes so that you last and you're sustaining um, yourself as a business. So how was that journey of entrepreneurship like for you uh, after 26 plus years now in business? Well, I would say in the 90s going into the 2000s, it was busy. I mean, I was quite busy, so, 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 so much so that um, there were parts of time when I was spending anywhere between three and four months in London and Europe alone in the course of a calendar year. So for five years in a row, when I was doing a lot of work for the NFL and Fox and the NFL Europe uh, uh, broadcast that we did, I was uh, living in London, living in the, the, the middle of London in Knightsbridge in a wonderful flat. And uh, I would be there from April till June. And uh, uh, that just kept me uh, unbelievably occupied and busy for at least a quarter of the, to a third of the year. But once my kind of deal with NFL on Fox ended back in 2010, it's been a little bit difficult. I mean, boxing has pretty much been a major staple for me now, along with some various track and field events here and there. But that has kind of uh, taught me a lesson about kind of relying on one client. 
you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so what we've had to do over the last year or two is to consider going out there and uh, doing some speaking engagements, which uh, I've done several. And I found that the ones that I've done, the greatest response always came from uh, college students because college students, especially those in the broadcast communications uh, classes, they want to know everything. I mean, they, they ask you all sorts of questions. They've got resumes. They've got drives with their their pieces on it. They've got, you know, <laughs> cards ready to hand to you. You know, I mean, they're, and they're no more than like 18, 19, 20 years of age, but they're already far more advanced and experienced than I was at that age where I didn't even know how to write a resume when I was 21. So <laughs> um, it's it's changed quite dramatically. Well, now that you are focusing uh, on diversifying and doing speaking and being out there, sharing your experience, uh, what is your goal uh, in terms of um, sharing with students as well as uh you know, groups of either in corporations or for other professionals. What is your ultimate goal and what kinds of experience, what kinds of topics uh, would you like to share with those who are willing and interested and like you said, with these college students in broadcast who are just, you know, foaming at the mouth to learn? (laughs) Well, I mean, as a 60-year-old African-American male in the sports television uh, industry, you can imagine what it's been like for me behind the camera. It's very different if you are a celebrity. If you are an ex-athlete or if you're an announcer and you've had the opportunity to um, make a living for yourself in front of the camera, you're far more visible to people. People see you all the time. Uh, Every weekend when they're watching their favorite games or their favorite sports, uh, you become another kind of family member for them in the, uh, in the household. But when you're behind the camera, no one has any idea that as a producer or director of a sporting event, we're the ones that are helping that announcer put that, that show on. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I, I put my emphasis to the kids that, look, there would be no announcers to be able to call an event if there weren't producers and directors that are there doing all of the hard research and the background work and setting the cameras and placing them and uh, audio and all the other things that go along with having to put a a show on the air. I mean, that one announcer or those two guys that are in a booth that are on the air, it may take as many as 75 to 100 people to put that entire broadcast on the air. So those two gentlemen, or the doesn't have to be men, those two people could be in the booth to produce that game or that event for that weekend. Now, Ray, we spoke uh, pre-show today about the importance of um, especially our youth thinking about their career and looking beyond just what they see coming out of the television screen or now online from their computers um, in terms of being in the front. You're also very interested in inspiring others to consider the behind the scenes, you know, and that's what you just tapped um, into right now is there's a lot, a lot of things that need to to happen behind the scenes. And um, we need a lot of wonderful, smart, intelligent professionals back there. So what are you seeing um you know, as, as 26, almost 35 actually years in, in the industry, I would say, um, what have you seen in terms of diversity, opportunity um, in, in the operational side of production? 
The unfortunate thing that I've seen is a lack of diversity in our industry. Um, it has really not changed much since I entered in 1981. Um, so I could count on uh, one hand the number of uh, African-American or Hispanic producers and directors that are in sports in particular that um, are producing or directing on the network level. So for at least um, 17 seasons, I was the only black NFL network producer um, doing NFL football. Mm -hmm. And there's been no one uh, since I left, since I was uh, done in 2010. Wow. Um, there is one African-American director that directs NFL football. He's at CBS. There is uh, one uh, staff producer, and he may or may not be staff anymore, but that does Olympic events for NBC. So literally each one of these networks may have one person on staff, and then maybe someone else they may hire on a freelance basis. But because of that, uh, I really find that it's disillusioning to look at the lack of diversity uh, in my industry. So my focus is really to um, try to help steer those young uh, people that are interested in broadcast television, in particular sports, to the various roles that there are in producing and, and putting on and staging a uh, sporting event. There are engineers that are there for audio. There are engineers that are there for video. There are people who are talented camera operators. There are folks who are graphic operators who come up with ideas and designs for graphics and the effects that you see on the uh, television screen. There are people that have to be able to uh, count backwards and know how to add and subtract time. So timing in, in television, as well as news, is critical to getting on and off the air. There are people with music backgrounds who can uh, help put together uh, the, the great music libraries to help us figure out the kinds of stuff that would work for the various sports that we use. In particular, the Olympics. I mean, the Olympic music that they use for libraries is vast and, 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 and far-reaching, and not just uh, music that you can buy, you know, uh, on iTunes or something like that, but original music, music that someone individually may do on their own and, and just gear for, uh, toward a, a particular sporting event. So um, I would say that the opportunities are few and far between. However, if you've got a unique talent or a unique skill that uh, you can find a way to market it, then uh, you might just be able to find that opportunity um, uh, and, and be able to take your ex expertise and take your talents and be able to use it on a, on, on a sports television broadcast. Now, let me ask you this question from your personal perspective and experience. Um, do you find this lack of opportunity in, in terms of a diverse work pool? Um, does that stem from just lack of interest or knowledge of what's available? Or is that a, ret a recruiting issue? I mean, is, uh, what are you finding to be true? Or is it somewhere in the middle? I'll tell you a funny story. When I first got in uh, at ABC Sports, one of the last interviews I had was with the late uh, great director Chet Forty. Chet Forty was a well-known sports director back in the 70s and 80s at ABC Sports. And um, 
He, uh, one of the questions he asked me at the time, and again, you know, I'm 23, 24 years of age. He asked me, as if I was some expert, why there were so few black people who were interested in working in sports television. <laughs> now, <laughs> why he thought I was a person to ask, you know, I, you know, I have no idea. But I kind of slyly said, well, maybe your reputation precedes you. And it went right over his head. He had no idea what I was saying. And, um, but you know, I, I tried to, um, later on, uh, some of the other people at ABC Sports, I tried to let them know that, look, there are plenty of people out there. You guys just have to find them. You just have to offer them opportunities. And they will, they will be there. And so I think that if you want to have a more diversified unit, a more diversified group, you have to have your, your people in the administration that are committed to it. I find that today, networks are not, no one is holding their feet to the fire, so they don't feel committed to it. Um, and it's a very, still very much an old boy network. And I would say the same thing is very true when it comes to hiring women. You know, uh, the networks nowadays, there are very few women that they will actually have produced live or direct live sporting events. I mean, I only know of one uh, female director, and I've known her for years, and she's a dear friend, but um, there's only a handful of people that have had even the opportunity to sit in that chair and be a director, a live director or a live producer. I mean, the men, the, in, particular, in particular, you know, white men just seem to think that it's their personal domain and that no one else is talented enough to do it. And, you know, we know that that's not true. But if people don't get the opportunity, they won't begin to, you know, have a very, a very different outlook on what people can and cannot do. Well, I'm going to ask to um, go a little bit deeper here in terms of emotional stamina. You've seen a lot. You've been through a lot. Um, and like you mentioned here, being one of the very few um, people of color in your industry, at least, at least from what you're sharing with me, how do you keep going? How do you stay positive? How do you continue to focus on quality and doing the best that you can, um, even in an environment that may not always be kind? It's very difficult. I've had a, a lot of ups and downs, personal ups and downs. Um, I, I was in therapy for nine years while I was <laughs> doing uh, a lot of this work. And um, you really have to love it. And, and Molly, that's the thing that keeps me going. I really love what I do. And if I didn't, I wouldn't be able to kind of, you know, say, okay, I'll be ready for the next event. Mm -hmm. You know, I would just, I would have cracked a long, long time ago. But I happen to come from pretty tough stock, you know, and um, personally, I am, uh, you know, I am a very determined, determined ind individual. And um, I don't let, like to take no for an answer. And so if there's a way I can figure out how to get it done, it'll get done. Um, that doesn't mean that uh, along the way uh, you, you don't doubt yourself. You know, I mean, our business is one of those kinds of businesses where if you're insecure, you don't stand a chance of, uh, of moving ahead. And, but yet we still go through bouts of insecurity. You know, I wonder... The show that I did, the last show that I did, did I make the best decisions? How did I treat the crew? 
Um, <clears throat> did I say the right thing to the announcer at the right time so that we were able to segue into the next topic or whatever it was? Did we have the right graphic to correspond with something that happened in the show? And did the announcers also see it and acknowledge it and make it play uh, you know, during the telecast at that moment? All these little idiosyncratic kind of things that the average person at home they're not necessarily looking at, nor are they even paying attention after having, you know, a couple of beers and some potato chips. They can care less. <laughs> it's just a matter of whether their team is winning it all or not. But for us, it's far deeper. There, there's, there's all these other things that we prepare, prepared for and try to weave into and out of the broadcast as seamlessly as possible so that you, the fans at home, can look at it and, and just not be phased like, well, how do they figure all of this out ahead of time? Well, we don't. We don't. It's just a matter of the things that we have. Did we integrate them into the into the broadcast as well as we possibly could? And so you can imagine, you could be up at night. It's like trying to to uh, to uh, figure out direct a movie or edit a movie and your final product, and you're looking at it and you're making tweaks to it here and tweaks to it there. Well, guess what? With a, a movie, it's edited, so you can you can edit all around and, and make it almost as perfect as you can possibly can. When it's a live show, guess what? We are beholden to what's going on uh, in the ring or on the field or whatever, and the best we can do is even if we make a mistake, Molly, keep going forward because if you, if you focus on that mistake, you'll be lost. Right. Well, I think also many, many years of experience help you get better about thinking on your feet. And uh, that's really a, a great thing for your crew, too, to see that you have that experience. And the, the director's job is to be able to be prepared for anything that might happen unexpectedly, well, especially on of, live TV. <laughs> one of the things I told a group of students once was that, you know, much like track and field, because I, I, I used to love to produce track and field events, much like track and field, there are people in our industry who are fast, who have fast twitch muscles and slow twitch muscles. The people who are slow twitch, those are the folks that do edited shows where they can take their time and be in an edit room and they can you know, stress back and forth about that shot or this shot or that music or whatever. The fast twitch people are the ones that do the live events because they can think quickly on their feet and they react quickly to what's going on uh, in the court, in the arena, on the uh, field, whatever the sport is. And they can make quick decisions and they have a, some sort of a commanding presence, Molly. That's the other thing, too. You have to have a presence when you're doing these live events because if you're kind of like a meek and mild and, and shy person, you don't do very well because people really need to be... Um, sometimes they have to have a little bit of a shock treatment, especially if they're losing their focus. You have to have the ability to wake them up and get them back in the game almost like a coach on a field trying to talk to his players. Mm -hmm. And so if you don't have that, that presence, and that goes for anyone, male, female, black, white, whatever, um, if you don't have that presence to command the people that you are, as many as 100 people or more on that show, it will, um, it'll be tough for you to kind of uh, influence the way that broadcast needs to go. 
because sometimes you can the announcers will take it over and now you're doing your best to hold on to their coattails and they could just go in any direction and it could just absolutely absolutely be a mess but it's up to you because you're the person controlling the content and how things are going to come across on the air and that really does require a certain amount of talent skill and effort now does that presence come with you in a package or is that presence can it be developed some people have it uh i would say i probably had it uh but then again i've had a big mouth all my life so <laughs> uh, and i i can thank my dad for that but other people have been uh, who i know have been shy people but i've watched them over the years grow into becoming um the kind of person who could command the presence uh that i think is required you know for this field wow well ray do you remember the time when you won your first Emmy? Yeah. What? I was actually what? dating someone at the time, and I was living in Manhattan. And uh, this was 1992, and so we had just gotten finished doing the um, uh, summer games in Barcelona. And mm -hmm. so this was, actually maybe it was, the summer games were in the summer of 92, and so the next year, 93, um, they had a uh, the event at the Waldorf Astoria, and when our group, uh, and it was a big group for NBC, uh, when we heard that we won and I found out that I won an Emmy, they gave all of us, <coughs> excuse me, an Emmy at the time, and <coughs> my girlfriend, when we got back to my apartment, she made me stand in the corner of my apartment and stand with my tuxedo and the Emmy in my hand. So <laughs> I still have that picture, and I hate taking pictures, but I, I did it for that first time. Wow. What was that feeling like for you? It was a great feeling of accomplishment. It really was. Um, because you knew that uh, you had like a whole month of your life that uh, was spent uh, working towards that award. And, you know, you spent very many long days and a couple of sleepless nights, you know, while, while you were over in Spain and uh, in, in that for that those particular Olympics. And, I mean, I've done 12 Olympics overall. but. Wow. That first one in, in uh, that first one where I won an Emmy in in Barcelona was uh, it will always be a memorable one. I think there's the one other award that I, I received was um, one where I was a producer for the world feed of the uh, weightlifting event at uh, the '96 Games in Atlanta. Now that's different. Uh, the world feed is is one that is uh, Atlanta themselves provide a company uh, that does the world feed of every single venue during the Olympics. So somebody, let's say in Russia or someone in uh, Germany or someone in, uh, uh, at a country, in a country in Africa or the Philippines or someplace, they, let's say, may be interested in weightlifting, but they don't have their own people doing the weightlifting. So they don't have any of their own presence uh, doing weightlifting. Well, the World Feed will, will do the, that venue for those people who want to see it, and they'll be able to watch it at their, you know, uh, at their, uh, in their homes at their, when, at whatever time it comes on the air. So that year, I did not work for NBC. I worked for the International Olympic Committee. And, uh, and so I did weightlifting for them, and we did it. We had a lot of world records set, uh, and we did it in a way that was, probably is entertaining um, with some of the personalities that weightlifting had. We had some great replays of reactions by these athletes that we were able to, uh, to employ. 
We used a couple of uh, different angles for cameras. We also had a, uh, a lot of camera work back in the back where decisions are getting made as to what uh, what's going to be the next athlete's weight and you know who is he behind and what does he need to win the competition. We had a lot of those uh, a lot of that video available for the fans that were watching uh, our venue. And in the end, I actually got an award with my director uh, called the International Olympic Rings Golden Rings Award. And and our venue was like the second best produced venue for the 96 Atlanta Games for the International Olympic Committee. And uh, that, that, that uh, award I'm particularly proud of because it really came out of the uh, uh, clear blue sky. I wasn't uh, picked to uh, produce that event right at the beginning. Someone actually fell out and uh, someone that I knew that was doing the Atlanta Games for the IOC called me and said, Ray, man, how soon can you get down to Atlanta? And I said, right away. And I, within a, like a week, I was on a plane down to Atlanta producing uh, an event that I had not even really prepared for. But uh, when it was all said and done, uh, we won a wonderful award, and it was a terrific experience. Wow. Well, congratulations. Sounds like it was well-deserved. A lot of uh, time and sacrifice and talent went into all that you do. So to be able to get these accolades, uh, um, you know, just really congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Now, we also uh, spoke uh, briefly pre-show about this story you wanted to tell about the the late great Muhammad Ali would you like to share that story Ray yeah you know uh, it was 1985 and I was still uh, an assistant to the producer at ABC Sports and uh, we were working on I was working with a producer by the name of Joel Feld on a uh, video presentation for ABC was going to honor Wide World of Sports was going to honor Muhammad Ali as the greatest athlete in the first quarter uh, or the first 25 years of ABC Sports. And so um, so I'm working on getting video clips and music and things like that for my producer. And uh, we start working on the, uh, on the piece. And, you know, it, it takes a, a week or two uh, because of everyone's schedule to try to find the time to get the piece together. Well, during that process... Um, now, the week of the event, they bring Muhammad Ali into New York. And Muhammad was accompanied back then by his uh, lifelong friend and photographer, Howard Bingham. And so I was told by uh, my producer and the executives at ABC Sports, hey, uh, make sure Muhammad Ali gets whatever he wants. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> I said, make sure Muhammad Ali gets whatever he wants. So here it is, I'm 29 years old, and I'm spending an entire week in New York City with Muhammad Ali. Wow. And so um, you just can't imagine what it was like to meet someone who was many people's hero, and in particular my hero. And being in a limousine with him, driving around in New York, eating at the best restaurants for lunch, for dinner, sitting in his hotel room, and he's doing magic tricks for me, he's telling me these stories about you know, his career. I'm telling him, you know, my remembrances of fights. And now we talk about boxing. I, I mean, it was, it was, a, you know, it was a wonderful week culminated by the, uh, the weekend where that Saturday was going to be the show, um, where we rolled a piece 
Muhammad Ali would be introduced to the fans in the studio, live studio that we had, and he would be cheered and, you know, he would receive the, the award from uh, Jim McKay, the late Jim McKay, who, who was Mr. Wide Wool of Sports for ABC Sports. But uh, I was backstage with uh, the champ and I had him next to me. We're looking at a video monitor watching the piece that I'd worked on with my producer, Joe Fell. And halfway through, Molly, he just starts to, the tears start streaming down his face. Mm. And needless to say, they start streaming down my face. Sorry. Uh, no, don't I be sorry. This is wonderful. Just get a little emotional yeah. when you remember these things. And so, so here it is. You know, the champ is crying. I'm, I'm bawling like a baby. Mm -hmm. And um, now it's time. The piece is over. He looked up. He said, and, and you know, he, he really, he could only kind of like whisper. But he just said, you know, that, that, that's beautiful. That was beautiful. And I just said, yeah, yeah, I know, champ. And now I'm looking at his face and his makeup is streaked all over his face. So we've got to get a towel. I've got to get the makeup person to get him redone. I fix his tie, you know, and we stand him up. And Jim McKay calls him out, and he looks back at me, and he just gives me a little wink. He says, do I look good? I said, <laughs> I said yeah, champ, you look great. And he went out to the stage, and it was beautiful. It was a beautiful moment, and I'll never forget it. And we get to experience it now through your storytelling. So thank you so much. Of course, it's emotional. I'm trying to hold myself back um, from feeling what you're feeling right now. And it's amazing, you know, when you think about all the things that we do in life, all the little moments are always the most incredible lasting moments. Sometimes it's not the biggest hurrahs at all. It's the little moments. It is, and... Um... And being able to share that with um, someone who is such an icon, such a, a legend, who had worldwide worldwide appeal, who <clears throat> who influenced many, not just an athlete, but many a person in in America and all over the world, to be able to say that you shared um, a special moment in time with that with that individual uh, is something that. Uh, you'll never forget. Uh, it'll be an experience that you can always share with people because uh, that's what Muhammad Ali did. He shared his experiences. He shared whatever you know he had to share with total strangers. And that was what made him uh, a beautiful individual. Well, you are blessed. Not just because you had a chance to be with and share moments uh, with Muhammad Ali, but you have done a lot in your life and you've been able to be an inspiration to so many. So I really wish you all of the success in the world with uh, cultivating young minds through your speaking and continuing to do great work, produce wonderful, wonderful things that for generations to come will be noted. And even though, like you mentioned before, those that are behind the scenes sometimes don't really get the recognition. Um, but you know, the experience you get to create, those things are priceless and you can't put a 
price tag, you can't put a plaque on the wall, you can't even hold it with your hand like you do with your Emmy because people experience it all the time and maybe they take it for granted, but you know what you did. And That's right. you're right. able to, you know, to, to hold on to that that gift that you get to give to others. So again, Ray, thank you so much for spending the time with us. I would love to um, have you share how our audience can reach you, uh, hear more powerful stories from you and learn about what it takes to not only be an entrepreneur, um, but to choose your passion and pursue it um, through the challenges, pursue it with all you've got and be successful. So how might we find you? Well, I am on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn uh, through my name, Raymond B. Smaltz III. Uh, I do have a website that's in uh, being redone. So, uh, But if you looked up Ray Sun Productions, R-A-Y-S-U-N Productions, um, at, uh, at uh, f- I think it's Free Space, or just RaySunProductions.com, uh, you can, you'll find my website, and I'll have pictures of uh, many people that I've worked with over the years. Uh, we'll have some testimonials, some video, um, a lot of different kinds of content of my time and my 35 years in the business. And then uh, if people would just want to email me, uh, they could email me at raysunproductions at gmail.com. That's R-A-Y-S-U-N, as in Sun Productions, uh, at gmail. Or my home business office is 845-692-4946. Thank you so much for being so accessible. And the next time I come up to New York, even though you're not in the city, I'd love to have a cup of coffee or lunch with you, Ray. Absolutely. I'm sure there's a Starbucks someplace I can meet you uh, in New York City anytime, anyplace, Molly. Sounds great. Again, thank you so much for your time, powerful stories you shared, and I really appreciate that you're willing right now in this time and phase in your life to give back so much of what you've learned so that others can um, really break through some barriers themselves. So thank you again. I really appreciate you for all you do, and please continue to shine your amazing light into the world. Thank you for the opportunity, Molly. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ray. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the SOAR Community Podcast. We love having you be a part of our community, and we will speak to you again very soon. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of SOAR Podcast. Join us by visiting SOARcommunitynetwork.com. 